Well, dear brethren and sisters, we would like to think a little this morning about the events surrounding Israel's restoration under Ezra, and particularly Nehemiah. So I've collated bits from various sources on this topic. But first, a few words of reminder of the background. In accordance with God's promise to restore Israel to their own land, a decree is issued by King Cyrus of Persia in 536 BC, allowing the Jews to return. Well, 40-odd thousand returned at the time. The altar was rebuilt so that the sacrifices under the law of Moses could be reinstated. After this, their next task was to lay the foundations for the temple of the Lord. So the foundations were duly laid, but at this point, opposition was encountered from the neighbouring peoples. And these neighbouring peoples, they enlisted the support of the new king of Persia, who had succeeded Cyrus, and he was on their side, so to speak, and so no further progress was made on the temple until Darius came to the throne. So, 15 years later, which was two years into the reign of Darius, the Almighty inspired the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to stir up the Israelites to restart the building of the temple. And this king, Darius, as Cyrus had been, was very supportive of the Jews and gave them much encouragement in this work. So four years later, the temple is completed in the sixth year of Darius. Fast forward another 58 years or so until the complete completion of the temple. Then another wave of exiles makes the four to five month journey from Persia, this time with Ezra, the priest, to Jerusalem. But over 50 or 60 years, a lot can change. We only have to look at our own country to see how it has degenerated morally over the last 60 years or so. So it was in Israel in those days. Things had degenerated and Ezra is confronted with the problem of mixed marriages. Israelites who had married into the surrounding nations. So he insists that they separate themselves from their foreign wives. Well, some 14 or 15 years later, we are abruptly introduced to Nehemiah, who was still in Persia, today's Iran, of course. And he was in the service of the Persian king. Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. We understand this was no menial task, but a well-paid position of importance and trust. It required a man of integrity and trustworthiness, lest he be bribed to present poisoned wine to the king. 
He held the king's life in his hand. On the story of how he had attained such a prominent position in the king's service, we have no information. Unlike Joseph, say, or Daniel, or Mordecai, where we have their history and can see what propelled them to such high offices. Maybe it's because the record in Nehemiah is autobiographical and modesty forbade too much detail. In reality, the only things he records are the things he regards as significant. And in the things he recalls, we see what his heart was full of. The other events in his life are not considered important. We think of the words of our Lord, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or in this case, we may say, the pen writes. His his earlier life story may have been interesting to us, but he wants us to focus on the things that are really important to him and to us. And these are the things concerning God's purposes and Jerusalem. He was visited by his brother Hanani, who had travelled up from Jerusalem. Nehemiah asked him about the returned exiles and how things were in Jerusalem. But the news was not good. The people were in trouble and shame. And despite the fact that the temple had been completed 73 years ago, nothing had been done about the wall of the city. We might have thought that this news would have been uppermost in Hanani's mind and that it would not have been necessary for Nehemiah to even have to ask. But if it wasn't in the forefront of Hanani's mind, it certainly was in Nehemiah's. Perhaps because it was bad news was why this hadn't been communicated. Perhaps after Too long a time, people had become demoralised. As they say today, their get-up-and-go had got up and gone. But Nehemiah is deeply moved by this depressing news. We recall too how Jesus once wept over Jerusalem. We read in Luke's Gospel, And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. In passing, let's not miss the valuable little insight here into the type of man our Lord Jesus was and is. To weep over Jerusalem one must be deeply moved, a sensitive and emotional character, as was Nehemiah also. So we read of Nehemiah, And it came to pass, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept, and mourned certain days, and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. It is interesting to note the total effect this news had on Nehemiah. 
It was devastating to him. He first sat down. He was stopped in his tracks, so overcome by the news, he could not carry on with what he was doing. Then he cried and mourned and fasted. He let the full import of what he had heard sink down into him before doing anything. But what could be there to do as he was stuck in the service of this king in Persia? Similarly, Ezra before him, when he had learned of those mixed marriages we spoke about just now, also reacted with deep feelings. We read, And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Ezra also fasted. Their desire for the things of the gospel was so powerful that anything which obstructed it or diminished it moved them deeply. And the first positive step in both of them was prayer to God. But there was not an immediate answer to Nehemiah's prayer. It was offered in the month Kislu, the ninth month, and then, apparently, nothing happened. But in the things of the Lord, we have to exercise patience. As has often been remarked, God is not in a hurry, like we are. Then in the month Nisan, that's four months later, as Nehemiah was serving wine to the king, the king noticed his sad countenance. I have read that it was not a good idea to appear, to appear before a great monarch without a lively and cheerful disposition. And this may be true, for we read of Nehemiah, then was I very sore afraid. So in reply to the king, he explains about the poor state of Jerusalem. Then we read in Nehemiah, Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. That famous, short, instantaneous prayer for help as the king awaited the answer to his question. And Nehemiah asks permission to go to Jerusalem and for a letter to ensure safe passage. Also, for materials, for the rebuilding works. And what is the king's response? Sure, Nehemiah, with great relief, heard, the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. So let's pause here to reflect a moment. Once God has said that he will do something, it will surely happen. He had said that the Jews would be taken captive, but that they would return after 70 years. And in order to accomplish his word, he moved the hearts of those worldly Persian kings in a truly astounding manner. What interest and devotion they showed to this cause. 
we read, in the first year of, this is going back to Ezra for a moment, in the first year of Cyrus, the king, the same Cyrus the king, made a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let their house be builded, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundations thereof be strongly laid, the height thereof three score cubits, and the breadth thereof three score cubits, with three rows of great stones and a row of new timber, and let the expenses be given out of the king's house, and also let the golden and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took forth out of the temple, which is at Jerusalem, and brought unto Babylon, be restored and brought again unto the temple which is at Jerusalem, every one to his place, and place them in the house of God. What a turnaround from the attitude of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Later, King Darius made an even more explicit decree with severe consequences if anyone should try to alter it. We read, Moreover, I make a decree what ye shall do to the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God, that of the king's goods, even of the tribute beyond the river, forthwith expenses be given unto these men, that they be not hindered. And that which they have need of, both young bullocks, rams and lambs, for the burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine and oil, according to the appointment of the priests which are at Jerusalem, let it be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer sacrifices and sweet savours unto the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and of his sons. Also, I have made a decree that whoever shall alter this word, let timber be pulled down from his house, and being set up, let him be hanged thereon, and let his house be made a dunghill for this. And the God that hath caused his name to dwell there, destroy all kings and people that shall put their hand to alter and to destroy this house of God, which is at Jerusalem. I, Darius, have made a decree. Let it be done with speed. Then Nehemiah's king, Artaxerxes, was also very supportive, as we have seen. It was so, it was truly so, and still is truly so, that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it, whithersoever he will, as we read in Proverbs. Or again, as Paul says in Romans 8, if God be for you, who can be against you? But having said all that, although the ultimate result was certain, how could it be otherwise? It did not mean it was going to be easy or trouble-free. God allowed the enemies of Israel to express their free will and oppose the Jews, which they did quite successfully. Doubtless, God allowed this adversity to test and to try his people, as we all have to endure problems and frustrations, disappointments and struggles, 
to develop, to develop those character traits which are of such great value in the sight of God. So Nehemiah faced derision. They laughed us to scorn. Contempt. What do these feeble Jews? Opposition. Direct, open assault. Discouragement from his own people. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. False friendship. Come and let us meet together, they said. Scandal, as we've read just now. Wherein was written, it is reported among the heathen, and Geshem saith it, that thou and the Jews think to rebel, for which cause thou buildest the wall, that thou mayest be their king. According to these words, and thou hast also appointed prophets to preach of thee at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah, and now shall it be reported to the king according to these words. And so on, the opposition prevailed, but was overcome. The wall may have been neglected for 88 years, but in 52 days it had been rebuilt. Nehemiah had to be resolute, determined, courageous in faith. But he had another side to his character as well. Generosity and concern for others. Let us quote from Nehemiah's fifth chapter. Moreover, from the time I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twelfth year even unto the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes the king, that is, twelve years, I and my brethren have not eaten the bread of the governor, but the former governors that had been before me were chargeable unto the people and had taken of them bread and wine, besides forty shekels of silver. Yea, even their servants bear rule over the people. But so did not I because of the fear of God. Yea, also I continued in the work of this wall, neither bought we any land, and all my servants were gathered thither unto the work. Moreover, there were at my table an hundred and fifty of the Jews and rulers, beside those that came unto us from among the heathen that are about us. Now that which was prepared for me daily was one ox and six choice sheep, also fowls were prepared for me, and once in ten days stores of all sorts of wine. Yet, for all this required not I the bread of the governor, because the bondage was heavy upon this people. Think upon me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Well, according to the generally accepted chronology, the time between the decree of Cyrus and the last mention we have of Nehemiah over 104 years had passed. 
So in our day, do not despair that God's purposes with his nation may take time to come to fruition. Arthur James Balfour, the British Foreign Secretary, issued his letter to Rothschild, known as the Balfour Declaration, on the 2nd of November, 1917. Today's date is 19th of November, 2017. Things take time. Let us persevere in faith and patience. For we read in Psalms, the time for God to favour Zion will come. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favour her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. So in the past, with the inspirational leadership and energy of Nehemiah, the wall was rebuilt. We can see what a lot of good can be accomplished through the actions of just one person. Nehemiah, Paul, Moses, Esther. And what a lot more good has and will be done through the sufferings and actions of one other man, the man Christ Jesus, without whom all of this other stuff would be completely pointless and life futile and meaningless, vanity as we read. But let us now focus our minds upon our Lord's momentous achievements, past, present and future, through his humiliating and excruciating death for us upon the cross. <laughs> 